Welcome to the Journey's Edge podcast. I'm your host, Christian Bao, leading technology and research at Notion Theory. And on this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Guo Freeman on a recent research paper she published with her team titled, quote, Anonymity versus Familiarity, Self-Disclosure and Privacy in Social Virtual Reality, end quote, which attempted to investigate how and why users reveal information about themselves in online social spaces with a particular focus in this paper on social virtual reality spaces because of the level of self-disclosure required to even participate in online VR spaces versus traditional non-VR social spaces. Guo is an assistant professor of human-centered computing in the School of Computing at Clemson University, and separately she leads the Gaming and Mediated Experience Lab. There, her research focuses on how interactive technologies shape interpersonal relationships and group behavior. With the rapid adoption of virtual reality as an online social space across demographics, this has pushed Guo and her team to focus on key questions surrounding privacy, ethics, nonverbal communication, self-representation, relationship building, and children participants in social virtual reality applications and platforms. We started our conversation discussing Guo's prior research with online social platforms, how people tend to interact with one another in online spaces, the balance between privacy and trust, and the difficulty of remaining anonymous in social virtual reality environments. Let's listen into the conversation. So any paper on privacy in XR is pretty quick to get my attention. And in your paper specifically, you draw a distinction between non-VR online social networks and VR online social networks as it relates to self-disclosure, which I found to be really insightful. In your research, you make a great point concerning the extent of self-disclosure required by an individual to even participate in a VR online social platform. Uh, In most online social VR networks, Before the experience even begins, we give access to our microphone with voice, create an avatar that typically looks like us or represents us in some way. Uh, We expose certain biomarkers that communicate intricate details about us as an individual. Comparatively to non-VR online social networks, the level of detail about an individual here is quite detailed and rich. And uh, I know in prior to this study, you were already uh, looking at privacy implications outside of VR on things such as the privacy paradox, which uh, I would love for you to touch on. So what were you looking at before this study and what led you to turn an eye towards VR online social networks? Yeah, sure. Uh, I would like to explain a little more about that. Um, so like my research like focuses mainly on like online social platforms. So um, like such as gaming and live streaming. Um, so we have done a lot of research about how people would interact with each other in online games and how streamers and viewers would interact uh, with each other. So like from those studies, we have found like people, like no matter they know it or not, they just constantly like reveal uh, like a lot of personal information like, to other people. Um, for example, in an online gaming, uh, a lot of times the gamers would have those small talks. They would talk about what type of games they played before and what other uh, experience or where they are, like because they would like to coordinate how they would do um, team gameplay together. And sometimes they would start to reveal, okay, like I use this social media platform and you can find me here and you can follow me on Twitter. 
And that's the same thing for live streaming because the streamer, uh, as you know, like when they stream and they have to put their face there and then they talk about those activities they do and they would stream their personal life. So like in that way, like people are actually like revealing a lot of information about themselves um, to like online strangers, no matter if they want to do activities together or they are uh, like just producing content like to attract like viewers, so uh, like from those research, we feel okay. Um, seems like uh, people are always doing this, and we have XR, like including like social VR, like that. It, like that creates a, a entire new uh, uh, like frontier, like for people to get in there, like with very immersive experience and creating uh, like a photorealistic uh, like avatars to themselves. So we want to know what would be the new risk here and how people experience those new uh, environment and how this affects how like the ways like that when they uh, disclose themselves and what type of information like they would disclose and what would be the like new risk here and when we talk about privacy paradox uh, as you said because um, we found it's important for you to reveal yourself online because that's how you would build a trust like with online strangers for for example, in an online game, uh, like you need to say, okay, what is my skill sets and uh, like who am I and what would be uh, my behavioral patterns? Then like you would form a team and fight a battle with others. So like, this is how you would build trust. And the same thing as streamers, and you need to kind of reveal who you are and what you do, then you would attract fans. Um, so like in that case, the more you reveal, uh, the higher level trust you would build with online strangers, but of course you would have a lower level of privacy like, because you are basically telling uh, like like all the other people you uh, you have never met in the real life who you are, where you live, what you do. Um, so like this is also like something we want to look in this new environment because in order to use the social VR, it's inevitable for you to. Uh, can give up some parts of your privacy. Um, so like you could create like those full body tracked avatars who look very much similar to yourself. So like you feel it's more like me, like in social VR. Uh, you could also use voice chat to interact like with all the other people so you don't need to type. So like all of those means if you want to enjoy this very nuanced uh, like their environment, you probably have to give up more privacy in order to build trust. So like that's another thing like we want to look at. I think something interesting there, just thinking out loud is, you know, when we're talking about the example of a live streamer um, or a gamer that is trying to do, um, you know, a, a social multiplayer game competitively, in in both cases, I think from from that side of things, there's a very clear intent to disclose some level of information to achieve some sort of outcome, right? Um, and when I think about this as opposed to like, you know, uh, like online social VR, um, in the case of those games, if I wanted to, um, I could disclose almost nothing, create a fake uh, game name, and I could play the game entirely and just never reveal just about anything. And if I wanted to communicate, I could do so via, you know, typing on the keyboard a couple of characters and leave it at that. When we move to something like online social VR, um, which is what I found interesting in your paper and where you drew that distinction, 
is here, um, you know, the prevalence of, of keyboard and typing in an online social VR experience is just not the same, right? It's not as easy. Um, you know, and, and most people communicate by voice. Um, in the same respect, um, when people are coming onto these online social VR experiences, um, whether they want to or not, in order to even just participate um, and just go into the experience, they already have to disclose all this information, right? Because if I want to, say, play a game like Counter-Strike or Apex Legends, which are uh, two online multiplayer shooting games, I can create an account, I can jump in, and I can, uh, what they do, uh, call solo queue, just queue as an individual, get put onto a team, go and play, and and, and never have to communicate with the team particularly. But in online social VR, I don't have these other ways to communicate per se that are quite effective. And so even just from the get-go to go stand in a, a random room with a couple of people, um, I, I have to kind of expose so much. And this comes back to also the part you mentioned with avatars, right? Where again, generally people will choose avatars that are more representative of, of themselves. Yeah, I think exactly. Because like, I think what we found in our research is like first, it's more difficult to remain uh, anonymous in a like a social VR environment. Like because like first of all, um, like you like if you need to use voice like to communicate, your voice would reveal a lot of information about yourself. Like no matter what, so so it's like gender, age, and race, and even like location. So so like if you want to enjoy like that service, and you need to. Uh, like give up that part of uh, privacy and and can't just like disclose like yourself. And in our research, we like we indeed found some people they would like to be more anonymous, so they would choose not to use like not to use the like, voice chat. But that means your experience in social VR would not be as interactive and as immersive as other people. Cause then like you either need to uh, do the typing thing like in social VR, like, which is not very easy to do, or like you would completely depend on body language. So it's like nonverbal communication, like to commute, uh, like communicate with others. So like people can do that. But but again, like as you have already mentioned, if you want to fully enjoy the like social VR environment, you have to kind of voluntarily give up your privacy. So like you could use voice chat and you could use those full, full body tracked avatars. So like then you feel like more, uh, immersive and engaging. I wanted to know what Guo and her team were looking for with this study, and if there were any particular hypotheses they had regarding self-disclosure in online social virtual reality platforms. Here, Guo covers the primary differences between a VR social platform and a non-VR social platform, and the demographic of participants that were and were not involved in the study. Let's listen back in. So then, as uh, you know, talk about the uh, study itself and the way it was conducted. So, what were you, you know, what were kind of the original hypotheses going into it, and what what outcomes were you kind of looking for in particular, and, and how was that study conducted? Yeah, great. Um, so that study is, I would say, like that was the exploratory study. So we actually didn't jump into doing that study like with any assumptions because as we said like social VR is so new so like we were uh, we actually didn't know like 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 it 
if there will be like any new findings and we found, or like if there is a huge differences between uh, like social VR and non-VR environment. So like what we did is we just designed a very open like interview study. So like we had uh, like 20 each pre predetermined um, interview question, but we keep them as a semi-structured. So like that means when we ask the people some interview questions based on the answers, we would ask like a follow-up questions just based on how they answer our questions. So like in that way, we would encourage the, the participants to just like explain like what their uh, experience are and what their uh, concerns are. And we will just go from there. Um, how we did it um, now, like most of social VR users, they would use online platforms to share their uh, uh, like experience. So we posted a recruitment message on Reddit. Um, so like several subreddits about like like social VR and get get then we get participants uh, there and then we just did online interview. So it's basically just a chat um, to ask them uh, like how they feel about their privacy like in social VR and what type of information they would disclose like to other people uh, in social VR and do they have any concerns? And if they do, like how, like what, like what they would do to mitigate like those type of risks. And so, you know, demographically speaking, uh, generally uh, like in total, how many participants did you end up having for the for um, this kind of exploratory study, and, and what were the general age ranges for the participants? So we did two rounds of interviews. So uh, the first round we had thirteen participants. Uh, I think the sample was actually very diverse. So uh, I think we have twenty as white and five as Asian and um, five as. Uh, like five as black and then like in uh, in terms of gender i think um probably 21 as male and then we have four four cis female and four transgender uh users in terms of age i think in general they were in their um like 20 to 40 ish so um and and so i don't think we have minors for their like a first round of interviews so like most of them are like 20 to 40 uh, but we we are doing like a second round and third round of in, uh, interviews now like for the second round we focus more on lgbtq users and um so like they may have some uh, like different experience and concerns. And the third round, we are also uh, like interviewing teenagers. So like people aged from 13 to 17 and say like if they have any concerns about social VR and uh, like what would be their like uh, unique uh, experiences. But for that particular paper you mentioned, I think we used our data from the first round of interview. So, so I think that's 30 adults. Here, Guo walks me through the results of the study, the level of awareness the participants had about the risk of self-disclosure, their attitude towards online social virtual reality platforms, and what she was most surprised to learn from the participants. Back to the conversation. So then speaking of the 30 adults, again, average age range between 20 to 40, um, 
given that, knowing that there weren't any any minors in there or, or teenagers, um, the results of the paper were quite telling and almost frightening, depending on your perspective. Um, some of the questions that came into my head immediately when I was looking at the results were, um, you know, for example, how much awareness did the participants have about the extent of the information they were disclosing? And, and separately of that, did they even have any, an understanding um, of the consequences that could come from disclosing so much information, given that you mentioned that most of them were, you know, at, at least adults, right, whether young or, or middle-aged adults, um, I'd imagine that they'd probably, you know, be a little bit more exposed to some of the potential consequences or, or privacy concerns. But um, at least from the results, it didn't necessarily seem to be the case. Yeah, I would say like we were actually very surprised by that funding. Um, uh, as well. So like when we ask them, hey, do you have any concerns about privacy or or like do you have any concerns about those in, like uh, like information you would disclose in like social VR? Uh, most of them actually said, I don't have any concerns. Uh, I feel okay to just tell people <laughs> uh, who I am, like what is my gender and what is my age and where I am and what type of job I do. So uh, as you mentioned, Although we feel like okay, like social, like social media has been been around for a long time, and people have been talking about online privacy and how much information you are disclosing online for a long time. We would expect uh, people probably would have higher awareness about those risks. But from our research, they seems to be okay to disclose, and they think social VR is a safe place uh, for them to disclose those information. Um, so, like in our findings, we found people. As I said, like they don't have any problems disclosing uh, their age, gender, and location, and race, and what type of job they do. Some of them would even say a little bit further, uh, like such as the street name they may live in and where they may be, like in the next couple of days. Uh, so, like they indeed tell us they are not going to tell other people the bank account or social security number. So, like at least those type of information. I'm not going to disclose, but we were just very surprised at how much personal information they were willing to share, and they did not think that's that would be a problem. And they think like social media is pretty safe. Um, so like like again, like this goes back to what we said about the trust and privacy. And they think it's okay to disclose because they want to make friends, uh, like from social media, and they think it's. Uh, safe to build that trust, uh, like with online strangers in social VR, and um, and all of those transgender users um, told us they feel very safe um, to share their like gender identity, and they actually get a lot of support from social VR, and they like those support actually encourage them to go through some real life changes. So like that was very powerful. So. From from what you're saying, it seems that the the participants that, that they spoke with and did the interviews, they they seem to have a pretty good awareness of that trade off, the the privacy dilemma that you're talking about, and so they they know that if they use the service, they would need to disclose some personal information, um, and that they. St- felt that the benefits of that outweighed the negative consequences of any privacy concerns that may happen in order for them to be able to engage in social VR um, because of the embodied immersive environment and kind of the, the perceived value the experience would bring. Yes, I 
I think so, because I think uh, most of them know uh, if you want to like enjoy social VR, you need to use voice chat. And uh, if you want to like really feel like immersive and realistic in social VR, you probably want to create an avatar that looks very similar like to yourself, like in the offline life. So in that way, uh, they probably would reveal their uh, height and body type and gender and age and and even some like some like facial um, and features. Because I uh, I remember one participant told us uh, he he wore glasses like in the offline life, so he really wanted to have an avatar with glasses because he really wanted to create an avatar looks exactly uh, like him. So like we would think in that way, like then it's really not so much um, an element left there, like because you would have an avatar that look like just like you and you would have a voice and you would share your information like about who you are and where you live. And then it's very easy for people to track and identify you in the offline life. So they knew like all of those, but they still think uh, like social VR itself, this experience uh, like is so much better than like than just going to like online gaming um, or just like do something on social networking sites and they really appreciated this immersive and realistic uh, experience. So they were willing to give a part of the privacy and the biometric data um, trying to be fully engaged uh, in that environment. When Guo talked earlier about the participant demographic involved in this study, she had mentioned that there were no children or minors. But because online social VR platforms are new and emerging, it's not uncommon to see kids coexisting and commingling in the same spaces as adults, which puts forth its own concerns. Here, Guo talks about the attitudes of children towards online social VR platforms, the interaction dynamics at play between different age groups, and whether or not children know the extent of the risk involved with self-disclosure online. Let's jump back to the conversation. So we kind of touched on some important, well, some of the things we touched on previously, it, it just begs a thousand questions. And and from what you're saying, there were many questions which you're already looking into with, with current research that, that you're conducting. And so um, one of those in particular we, we were talking about in this particular batch of interviews, it was um, all adults, so there were no young children or minors. But um, that's one particular area that I think is is probably important to consider and in, in understanding that in these social VR environments, right, it, it's not as though, you know, it's like, okay, well, because you're, I don't know, eight years old, you can't go play with the adults. No, in these environments, it's very much kind of the wild, wild west, right? Everyone gets thrown into a single environment. And so um, what happens when these younger children then coexist with these adults on the platform and what type of dynamic that creates? And then, you know, just considering it, in these online worlds um, where I, I would kind of anecdotally say that the younger generation is much more comfortable with creating and maintaining these sorts of relationships online, you know, when considering that, and maybe they spend more time in these environments, um, how do the interactions with their peers on the online social VR network platform translate outside of these virtual worlds and into the real world when they actually go to interact with these adults? Um, do, do, do you have any thoughts on that? And, and I know you said you're doing some research on it now. Yes, yes. Um, so like we uh, we do have un, 
Uh, ongoing research just focuses on like children and social VR. So like we do study uh, how they uh, experience social VR and how they interact with both their peers and adults and what type of experience and risks they have. Um, so like, I think this is a really like important question, like when we look at like designing social VR uh, in the future, because from our research, like even like in this batch of 30 adults, everyone told us they had uh, like interacted with teens and children in social VR and they had uh, like, uh, of course, both good and bad experience uh, like with children and teens. And, and in our research that particular like folks uh, um, on teens, um, they also told us like different dynamics when they interact with uh, with their peers. So, uh, so like, so like people who age from like thirteen to uh, to seventeen, and with adults. Now, what we found is very interesting. It's the first thing is they think social VR is very positive. Um, so like they consider it a very positive uh, experience and a social space for them to interact like with other minors and build intimate like relationships. So like they would make friends. Uh, and especially now, like under pandemic, a lot of them are like staying at home and they could not meet with their friends. So like they consider social VR was a very, uh, like very immersive way like for them to stay connected uh, like with others. And they would also learn from each other. So like they would do homework together and trying to, um, trying to like um, solve problems together. Or they just think it's a really good entertainment like, because you could play all of those mini games like, with your friends. Um, they did mention some negative experiences as bully and and harassment. So like we still say say like the same thing as in the offline world. So like younger kids would likely be harassed by like older kids and girls. So uh, so like teenage girls and they they would be more likely be be harassed. By, by boys um so like they have their own ways like trying to navigate like those at trying to deal with uh, with harassment and and when we talk about interaction dynamics between teens and adults and i think that gets even more interesting um so the like one thing we found is not just adults could harass kids like kids could could harass adults too so like they would run around and make troubles and then like making those adults feel like okay i don't want to stay here i just want to leave because they are kids so like adults didn't want to deal with them or like yell at them so like they just left um, but on the other hand they indeed mentioned there would be uh like increased risks like for those kids because first um they probably don't know too much about what type of information I should not disclose. Yeah, I, I guess that was going to be one of my questions, right? Going back to the the privacy privacy concerns. Um, you know, when we were talking about the the adults, um, mm -hmm. it seemed like that group of individuals that generally likely had maybe more repeated exposure to this type of technology and and maybe potentially has a better understanding of what the concerns and implications of that are. Um, you then have these younger kids and teenagers um, that likely still have so much experience relative to concerns and implications that could come from their information being leaked, um, did they seem to have uh, any awareness remotely 
related to the older adults or, or did, did they generally seem to be much more naive about how their information would be used? Yeah, I think they had an understanding uh, about online privacy in general, but I feel like they probably um, like did not understand like that risk could probably way too higher uh, in like social VR, because the first thing is it's much easier to identify if you are a child or teen uh, in social VR because your avatar will be shorter. And also like based on the voice and people would easily identify, okay, here is a kid like talking. So if we would have some and like harasser or uh, or child predator, um, then like that's much easier for them to identify uh, the potential uh, like victim. And based on our study, like some uh, some children, they don't have problem to reveal some um, we would consider more private like personal information. So like for example, they would tell others what is the name of their teacher and which grade they are in and which school they go to. So like in like in that way, like that's much easier to just narrow down where they may live and then like if, if people want to find out their identity and then they could easily find them. While Guo and her team are focusing on a larger study involving LBGTQ plus individuals and their attitudes towards online social VR spaces, Guo does touch here on some considerations they observed in participant interviews and the attitudes of some LBGTQ plus members towards online social VR spaces. Back to the conversation. Earlier, you, you, you were mentioning um, that we had four, four trans, transgender participants in this particular study, but you were also doing a separate study looking at LGBTQ. So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the context of, um, I, I guess, what we would consider generally more marginalized users online, um, you mentioned that the transgender um, individuals felt, you know, more confident, more safe. Um, but in the current research you're doing, are, are you seeing that they represent a subset of a larger audience or were they a little bit more of an anomaly and it's not actually such a safe space in some regards? Yeah, so like for that interview study we are doing, uh, I think now we have 29 LGBTQ users. Uh, we would plan to do a like larger scale like survey. Um, so like in that way, like then we would know more about the, the general trend about that population, like rather than a smaller sample. So like uh, the goal of interview studies trying to get very deep in people's uh, experience and uh, like unique challenges. So like that would help us design that uh, like larger survey. Uh, but I would say that based on our uh, interviews, uh, uh, so like of course there will be uh, limitations of a uh, interview study because people who want to participate are, are usually people who want to share and talk about uh, their uh, experience. So uh, from that interview study, and most of the people feel um, comfortable and and positive about like revealing their uh, identity and sharing their uh, uh, experience in in like social wear. And I believe there is also LGBTQ on focus the social space and events um, in social VR. So like that group could all come together and share their uh, experience and support each other. So they do have a pretty uh, big presence in social VR. Um, but they also told us they do get harassed uh, based on their identity, um, especially for like transgender users, because it's, 
uh, again, it's harder to uh, conceal their identity, like because you could use a like for example, like feminine avatar, but when you talk, and then like your voice would still like reveal um, some of your like gender identity, more, more masculinity, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And uh, and then people would have questions. Um, then like that may may just lead to some harassment or like bully. So like they indeed mentioned that, but they also said they would find a more supportive community and meet with other LGBTQ users in social VR and they could engage in a more immersive conversation and they would found their own community. So like that's like, again, uh, some trade-off. Here, Guo and I talk about how online social VR networks add a physical dimension that increase the intimacy of relationships developed in virtual reality as opposed to relationships developed in traditional online social networks. Let's listen in. Yeah, those are two really good points. So it, it kind of sounds as though um, almost to an extent, you know, how, how we see a lot of support groups with regular online social networks is that with the VR online social networks, there's a mm-hmm. sense of, um, uh, I guess, greater intimacy in the fact that they're able to kind of be there air quotes, in person um, to share the stories and speak with one another. And so they get not just, you know, that that verbal or textual communication, but all the nonverbal communication as well, right? Which I, which I imagine kind of, you know, uh, results in things like eye contact and how they speak to someone and the tone of what they're saying and probably the proximity of how close they are to the individual when they're speaking or when someone else is sharing their story, right? Yeah, and, and they could also hug each other or pat the like shoulders or just do a fist bump so like in all of those ways they could use kind of like some like some simulated physical touch like to show those emotional support like rather than just say hey i support you or hey i hear you so like i think that's really important for them to have this physical dimension uh, because they can really feel like the people are supporting them, are like hugging them, and are giving them uh, like all of those help they want. While much of my conversation with Guo was focused on the concerns regarding self-disclosure and privacy risks, she does highlight the abundant value online social VR platforms provide to its users. Since online social VR spaces are still novel and emerging though, Guo advocates the importance of maintaining a healthy level of precaution when using these platforms to limit the privacy risks involved with self-disclosure. Back to the conversation. Social VR is a very novel platform, and based on what we say, like people indeed found friendship and they found support, uh, and in a more natural and realistic way, like from social VR, and uh, like we'll say, like maybe because of pandemic, like people may use social VR even more in the future for for education and for like learning purpose. Um, so I think it would be very important to, to say like what would be uh, like both the like pros and cons uh, of those platform and, and uh, um, like those very nuanced social interaction there. Um, so like based on what we say, um, people could build pretty high trust um, like on those platforms and they could have very positive and supportive uh, experience. Um, but just in order to use it, you have to reveal uh, more information about yourself and you probably would, would subject 
yourself to higher privacy risk. Um, so like this doesn't mean it's always bad, but I think we just need to be more aware uh, uh, of all of those potential risks, uh, then people would know like how to deal with that when they are like on the platform. Because I guess what's interesting there is there's this dichotomy where you know if I if you and I are in an online social VR network, um, and I am disclosing fairly private information to you because I am essentially trying to build trust with you, right? I'm sharing a personal story to you to basically communicate to you that um, I'm making myself vulnerable so we can create a friendship, so we can try and build um, a relationship that is, say, um, more intimate in terms of the stories we are sharing with each other. Um, You know, what's interesting is when you're doing it on an online social VR platform, there's always a silent third party that is there, right? That's not present, but they're always there. And so even though you and I are disclosing this information to each other and, and having these very, what we believe to be private conversations, it's on a platform where, where this, there's this kind of silent third party observer that's like a fly on the wall. And it's certainly listening and hearing and seeing all of this. And so um, I, I guess there, there's this kind of, you know, trust dilemma that that goes a few different ways because I can trust you and you can trust me, but then we're on the platform and can we trust the platform, right? Which is kind of a big question mark. Exactly. And also, I mean, like people can overheard your conversation. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, because most of people would use voice. So like, like when we chat and build this bond and trust. So like, unless you go to a, a private place or a private room and other people who are observers could, uh, could say like your behavior and your, your interaction and what you are talking about. So, so like, I think in this case, when we talk about privacy, it's not just uh, like, uh, like the two parties who are engaged in the conversation, but we like we need to also um, like kind of consider those bystanders or like observers in that dynamic. And that was my conversation with Guo Freeman. She and her team are exploring vitally important questions we don't yet have clear answers to at a crowded intersection of self-disclosure, privacy risks, social dynamics, and more. I'm excited to see what additional insights her lab uncovers as they continue their series of exploratory studies to better understand the self-disclosure and privacy discrepancies between VR and non-VR social spaces. If you'd like to learn more about Guo's research work and the initiatives underway at the CU Game Lab, you can find those materials attached to this podcast episode. If you're interested in staying on top of the latest research developments in 3D, AR, and VR, please consider joining the Journey's Edge Discord group. Separately, If you are currently a researcher and would like to have your research considered for an episode on this podcast, please contact us. That's all for now. See you next time.